in this series to talk about, hey, what do we believe? What's the core, kind of some of the basic tenets of the Christian faith? And then how does it really impact our lives? And so I am excited. Uh, I sense God already doing some things. He did some things in my life during that worship. Thank you so much, Jeff and the team uh, for that. And I sense um, God doing things here and to continue to do that uh, throughout this message. Before I do that, I know we're ending a series today. That means we begin one next week. So I want to just give you a quick promo uh, for what's coming uh, next week. So go ahead and watch this uh, video. So that's coming next week, and I, we're going to talk about money. And I want to just say right up front that I understand that many people think, oh, boy, the church talking about money. Here we go again. They just need to pave another parking lot or do something else, or they need more money. Um, this series isn't about us needing more money. And here's the heart of this and the heart of a pastor. Please hear my heart this morning. Uh, and, and consider inviting friends next week because as I have sat with couples struggling in marriage over the years, uh, I have looked in the eyes of a husband and a wife many a times who the presenting problem coming into the room is is money problems. I've sat with myself and looked in the mirror and I've walked with other people who are not at peace when it comes to their finances. And when you're not at peace when it comes to your finances, it, life is hard. And the scriptures talk a lot about money. So our heart through this series is to care for and shepherd and walk with people through this issue of money so that we can be at financial peace uh, with what God has uh, richly blessed us with. So that's the series. We're going to very practical series. Uh, so again, maybe you have some friends you'd like to invite and can you to do that and certainly encourage you to be back um, next week. With that said, this morning... We're going to wrap up our series, Building Blocks, on the subject of eternity. We're going to really talk about heaven, a lot about heaven, a little bit about hell, but really going to kick heaven around a lot. Uh, we are on page, if you have one of these journals, uh, reading plans, it's on page 64. You can take notes there. If you don't have one of those journals or don't know what that journal is, you can explore it out and to the right. Uh, you'll find them there, and you'll also find those uh, reading plans. Now, to get us going with eternity, I want to tell a story, and you're going to probably listen to the story and think, what does this have to do with eternity? Hang with me. Okay, I promise it'll make sense in a minute. But it comes from my childhood. And when I, uh, my family would do vacations a lot. But oftentimes our vacations meant a hunting cabin with no running water and an outhouse that as a little boy I was scared to death of. I mean, I don't know what was down that hole, but I didn't want to go anywhere near it. Uh, so that's <laughs> where we went. So it come with this vacation. I don't remember why or don't remember what was the occasion, but my parents took us out to Pittsburgh. Now, Pittsburgh was, you know, I've seen cities, but this was my first time staying in a city. We check into the hotel. I think we were up on, we were up on one of those high floors, and I'm looking out like, whoa, my eyes are this big. And we rode the cable car. If you've ever been to Pittsburgh, you know, the cable car across kind of the way there, looks out over the rivers. And um, the vacation was coming to an end, and I was really taking it in. And my parents decided uh, to take us to um, an experience that we have really never had a lot growing up. And I'm roughly somewhere between seven and nine. My youngest sister, of best of my memory, wasn't born yet. She's nine years younger than me. Uh, so I'm somewhere in that ballpark. And so my parents take us to this experience, fine dining. We go to a restaurant called the Top of the Triangle. Now, it doesn't exist anymore today because my argument be it wasn't so fine, but that's um, neither here nor there. I went on Google this week, and it went out of business a number of years back. But it was on the top of the tallest building in Pittsburgh. And, and from what I remember, the building actually slowly turned as you sat there and ate. So you get kind of this till you're done with your whole meal, you've seen the entire city. I remember coming into the, 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 the building, into the lobby, and we walk into this, the elevator, 
Have you ever been in an elevator? This is my first experience. With an elevator that goes up those skyscrapers, those things move. And so I get in this thing. It was like an amusement park ride to me as a kid. I mean, that thing takes off, and I, like, suck to the floor. We get done, and the doors open. I walk out. I feel like I'm two inches shorter than when I got in. And my eyes see and take in are these, these beautiful chandeliers, and I see linens hanging over, the, hanging over the tables, and I see waiters and tuxedos, and I'm like, man, this is fancy. Uh, I sit down, and as a little boy, they hand me a menu. I think the menu was about as big as I was and about as heavy as I was, and I start opening this thing up, and my eyes are scanning down through. Now, I struggled with English to begin with, but I tell you, I didn't know how to pronounce half the stuff on this menu. And I'm looking through, and I'm like... What is this? I'm like, where are the hot dogs? <laughs> what? French fries. Every restaurant has French fries. I can't even find French fries in a second. No macaroni and cheese? Are you kidding me? Where's the kids' menu? I mean, come on. And so in my spirit, I'm beginning to grumble, and I'm thinking, take me to McDonald's. Get me something I enjoy. I mean, what is this? Now, as I think about that experience, it could be argued that I had a juvenile palate. Some of you may say who know me, Adam, you still have a juvenile palate. (laughs) Pizza and french fries will do it for me every day, throw a little chicken fingers in and we're good. (laughs) So again, I still got a juvenile palate, but, but what I find interesting is I think about that experience. What I craved, what I yearned for, wasn't even real food. I wanted McDonald's burger and fries. Why didn't I crave this magnificent spread laid out in front of me. As I think about heaven, kind of compare McDonald's to here and to now to that. And somebody's going, Adam, I love McDonald's. I'm sorry. I apologize. Hang with me. I'm sure it all makes sense. So I think about this, and I think I'm so happy with McDonald's when that up there is available to me. And I stop and I think about my life, and I, I just I reflect on my Christian journey. And I thought about this past week, and I thought of the last two weeks and the last month, and I asked myself the question, how often did I crave heaven? Did I yearn for it? Did I think about it? And my answer was I wanted McDonald's. I say, why is that? Now, some of that, I think, is, is in modern evangelical world. There's a lot of talk of the kingdom coming and, and a lot of talk of let's not be so heavenly-minded we're no earthly good. And, and Jesus prays, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And there's this picture of the kingdom coming to earth. And so I understand there's a lot of Christian thinking today that just really pushes for live the kingdom out here. But I still push back and say, why don't I yearn for heaven? Might it be that I'm kind of like I was that little boy who was satisfied with hot dogs when so much more was available. Or I remember as a little boy, I'd come home from recess, and I'd always get in a bus with a little baggie in my pocket because I always kept this little baggie with me where I could scrape around the asphalt and scrape up iron pyrite, you know, fool's gold. I loved it. I'm going home rich. I'm so satisfied because my pocket is full of gold. It's just iron. But I'm so satisfied. I wonder, is that why we live life? Now, Now, don't mishear me. Am I truly satisfied? Are you truly satisfied? I would answer no, with a resounding no. I have a lot of pain, physical pain. You do too. Some of you walked in here with great pain in your heart this morning. Some of you experienced great pain this week you don't even know about yet. You've experienced death. You've experienced broken relationships. You've experienced financial trouble the same as I have. You've experienced sin. You've experienced your weakness. So I'm not satisfied, but what I find 
what I find, as long as I think that there's a pretty good chance that I will achieve some of my dreams, as long as I think there's a shot at success for my dreams, my experience of inner emptiness results in an internal drive to get it. Or, or even my anxiety masks itself as hope for achievement. And what I miss then is what I am truly satisfied with Christ and him alone, which will truly satisfy that inner emptiness, I miss and push away from. And when it comes to heaven, here's what heaven is. What makes heaven great is that I'm finally with God in a face-to-face relationship with him. Now, some of you know the Christian belief that Hebrews says it, that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Some of you know that the Holy Spirit lives inside of those of us who profess the name of Christ. So you say, Adam, I always have the presence of God. No, we don't fully have the presence of God. We have the spirit of God living in us, and we're going to look at some scriptures in a minute that say, listen, what we are going to have in heaven is just a small taste of what we have now. We are going to get to look at him in his face and have a close relationship. That's what heaven is. And until I grasp that, what I generally then think about heaven is no more tears, which is very true, streets of gold, which is very true, Sin completely gone, which is very true. But that's not something that drives my thinking day in and day out. What drives my thinking day in and day out is have that face-to-face interaction with my creator. Now, a verse that kind of I want to use to launch us into this deep. Okay, this one's going to get us in there fast. Philippians 121, written by a guy named Paul who was in prison for preaching Jesus. Um, He is facing a certain death. It's coming. And he says this as he's facing his death, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's look at that again. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Is that how you live life? <laughs> let's say this together. I think it's a good one. Let's, 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 can we say this together? Can we do that? Let's go ahead. To live is Christ, to die is gain. But let me really, if, if you're comfortable, turn to the person beside you and just say that to them. Let's go ahead. Hear yourself saying that. I loved it. Now, some of you didn't say it because only the one said it. I think you guys are happy we got it down, right? But to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now, I am only going to count him gain when I am truly satisfied in him, truly and completely. When I'm satisfied in Jesus, I can be happy letting things go that other people live for. And death is only gain because I will have Jesus. I think of a number of verses. These are verses I generally read when I stand after a funeral and and the body has been lowered into the ground or getting ready to lower it into the ground. I generally read verses like this. And here's one of them uh, that captures this picture of to live is Christ, to die is gain. Life is all about satisfaction in Jesus. It says this, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 10, written by the same guy who wrote that in Philippians. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, We are away from the Lord. Don't miss that. As long as I walk around in this body, there's distance between me and God. Yes, I have the spirit living in me, but there's distance. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So he's saying, I yearn to be there. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from him. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. The same thought continues in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 and 28. I read this last week. If you are here last week or caught the message, this was one of the final verses I read to end the whole morning. But it says, just as people are destined to die once. I'll pause there. The last time I checked, the mortality rate is still at 100%. Every one of us in this room is facing that word called death. It's ugly, it's hard, and we don't like to think about it. Some of you have already experienced it as you walked with loved ones, and you understand the destruction that death is. It's hard. So it says we're all destined to face it, and after that, we face judgment. All of us do this. So because of that, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin... That's what he came the first time, to bear our sin, to die on the cross, to raise again. But he's going to come a second time to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him, that yearn to live as Christ, to die as gain. Next verse comes in 1 Corinthians. Again, a classic. Some of you probably have heard this at a funeral or at a graveside. It says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, It's talking about my perishable body with my imperishable spirit and completion of my soul and the mortal with immortality. Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the greatness of heaven. I get to sit in a relationship with the creator God of the universe and look at him in his eyes. Do you covet that? Do you yearn for that? Can you say, as Philippians 1.21 says, for me to live is Christ, because I have him here, but to die is gain. Are you satisfied with Christ? The way our statement of faith reads, this is kind of what we've been working through. You say, uh, this is, again, one of, we've done this every week. This is one of the statements in our statement of faith. It says, we believe in the resurrection of all people. Those who are saved unto the resurrection of everlasting blessedness with the Lord. That's heaven, that's eternity, new heaven, new earth. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. And those who are lost to eternal separation from God. All people face this. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 21. Now, this whole list of books of the Bible, this table of contents that we throw up, this one's, a little, this one's a pretty easy one to find if you have a Bible. Revelation is the very last letter stuck in this compilation of things that we call different books and letters of the Bible. Written by a guy named John, Jesus' closest friend here on this earth. He had a closer relationship with John than any other human being on earth when, when Jesus was here physically. And he writes this apocalyptic book and letter to seven churches to say, this is what the future is going to hold. This is what's coming. Now, this, this letter has intrigued many over the years and have caused all kinds of discussion and, and uh, theories and what's the future going to hold. But I want to look here, just a few uh, kind of nuggets here we can pull out of this. Let's actually back up to chapter 20. You're there in 21. Just go up one verse into chapter 20, verse 15. It ends, it ends verse 20 this way by talking about Satan and his demons and being cast into the, this lake of fire. And the word Hades is used there and all these, these descriptive terms. And it says this, verse 15, if anyone's name 
was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, it's a sober thing, but I want to just speak. One of my concerns with the evangelical world today is we are erasing hell. That little video, that cutesy little video you watch before the message when it talks about annihilationism, I mean, there's this thought that people are just going to be annihilated. You won't go into eternity. If you don't know Jesus, you're just going to cease to exist. And there's these thoughts that, you know, God's love is going to save everyone. And there's all these, and I'm here to say the scriptures teach that on that final day, the book of life is going to be open. And I get into the book of life by believing in Jesus. And it's going to go down through, and I'm going to stand before God, and he's going to go down through Nagel, David, Adam. Look down through. Some of you didn't know that, right? My name's not Adam. There you go. He's going to go down through the book and say, you're there. Come on in. For those whose name are not there, please hear this. There will be complete and total separation from God for the rest of eternity. Not 60, 70, or 80 years of earthly life, but eternity. And it's a place called a lake of fire. It's a place of continuous burning. It's a place where you see in one scripture where Jesus tells a story of a man named Lazarus who is in this place and he's separated from God and he just craves a drop of water. I'll take just one drop. It's not a pretty place. It says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a term you've probably heard before. It just means there's going to be a lot of suffering, a lot of heartache. And, you know, I've heard people say it this way, well, hell is here on earth. I can't imagine living any more hellish in the life that I've had. And I say, oh, trust me. If you think what you're experiencing now is hell, magnify that 10, 100, 1,000 fold. Hell is not here on this earth. We suffer with sin, but there is a future coming for people whose name are not in the book of life, and it is ugly. Now, the flip side, here's what I want us to see, the hope of verse 20, uh, chapter 21 then. So now John's going to get this picture into the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. It says, then I saw heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men. First description we really have of heaven is God is now dwelling with you. It's a face-to-face. And look at what it says. And he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be them, will be with them and be their God Chapter 22, again, there's so much in between there I'd love to talk about. Chapter 22 starts out this way. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree... And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Sin will be gone. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. Now look at this next phrase. If you have an NIV Bible, it reads this way. They will see his face. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I will have complete satisfaction of walking into that relationship that I can't possibly understand here now. I get a taste of it in the fact that I have the Holy Spirit living in me, but I will get to walk with and look into the face of my Savior. And his name will be in the foreheads. Verse 5 then goes on. There will be no more night. There will be no need for light or lamp, for the light of the sun, for the God will give them light, 
and they will reign forever and ever. And another passage in Revelation says God will literally be the sun that dwells among us. Again, heaven. Heaven is ultimately what makes heaven great is that I'm finally with my God face to face. For me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Now, I want to get very personal. I don't just want to talk the theory of this and all leave saying, yay, it's so nice. How does it impact me today? How does it impact Adam Nagel's life today, October 26, 2014, and tomorrow and the rest of this week? I want to ask a couple questions. Are you living that life of for me to live as Christ, to die as gain? Do you yearn for satisfaction in God alone? And maybe the most practical way to ask it is this. Is Jesus enough for you? And that might still be a tough question to answer, so let me ask it this way. Let me ask it this way. For you, if I only had blank, I'd be happy. What do you fill your blank in with? You know, as I look at our culture today, I know how they fill their blank in. It's marriage and sex and romance. And I know I, I sit with people today, young people, old people, divorced people, uh, all kinds of people today that are single for whatever reason today. And this isn't a comment on remarriage. This is just simply to say what pains my heart in so many of those situations is I hear the person almost talking like, you know what? I can't be happy until I have her, until I have him. I need them to complete me. And I say, is Jesus enough? Or, or maybe in marriage, I hear the husband or the wife who's hurting and grieving, and they sit there and they say to me, Adam, Adam, Adam. And I've said this at times, if only she would change, I'll be happy. If only he would change, I'd be happy. What is in your blank? And can Jesus fill that for you? Would be my bold question to push in. For some, it's child-rearing. Now, again, I acknowledge that Jesus has created us. It says it's not good that man be alone. So there's, I understand the crave for marriage. That's, that's normal. But I think in its normalcy, we don't ever stop and ask, am I looking to marriage and sex to be something that only God can be for me? And in childhood, again, it's normal. We're creating the image of God. We're created to bear children. And those of you in this room that have had a barren womb, it is pain like nothing else. And at times I find, ask the question, is your craving for children. If you would be satisfied in that, would you be happy? And a lot of us don't ever stop and ask, is Jesus, you know, you know when we really know when Jesus is enough? When Jesus is all we have. And I'm amazed that when times get tough with me, when Jesus is all I have left, I don't rejoice. I'm still craving and pining away. Let me have that stuff out there. I mean, what fills your blank? Is Jesus enough? Maybe for you, it's being satisfied and pleasing people. For you, hell on earth is making them upset or having them say something about you or, or having this said. Or, and, and again, will you be happy <laughs> when you live in harmony with the people around you? Sure. It's a good thing to live in harmony with the people around you. We don't want to walk around intentionally ticking people off. I think you're unhealthy if that's what you want to do. But can you stand to someone you love and say, I'm willing to lose your approval because I 
have to say some hard things because I love you. And you go on down, maybe, maybe it's, can you be happy without the promotion? Can you be happy when you hear the word cancer? Can you be happy when your kids rebel and turn from you or maybe turn from God? Can you be happy if you never have that elusive home and you rent from here until you're 80 years old? Is Jesus enough? And my contention is, my contention is the reason I don't pine away and yearn for heaven is because my personal answer to this far too often is no. And my heart and my challenge as we end this series is that we answer this with an affirmative yes, and if it's not a yes, we do the work necessary to make sure that he is enough. Now, when, he's, when we don't answer this, here's what heaven becomes. What heaven becomes for us is then we yearn for the place to be no more tears, which it is. It's not necessarily bad. That's all. We yearn for that. Or heaven becomes a place where we study. Let's just study and talk about heaven. And, we, and I'm going to do a little bit of that. I'll lighten the load here. Some of you are like, oh, my goodness, Adam, back off a little bit. I'll, I'll back off here. We'll have some fun here. So we end up studying heaven. And we ask questions like this. Aren't bad questions. But I find this is where many of us spend our time thinking about heaven. Things like, things like do, does my dog go to heaven when it dies? Does it? Some of you said yes. I heard a yes. Are there any no's in here? How about a no? Do we have a no? There we got a few no's. Okay. Now, the pastor I served with in Mifflin County had a resounding yes to that answer. I don't know. I mean, so I don't know. I'm going to give you my answers to these. Um, so, again, they're going to be quick answers. If you want more depth to them, um, shoot me an email, and I'll do my best to give you a little more depth if you, if you want that. Um, can a Christian be cremated? Some will ask that because we hear about resurrection and the body and the, yes, I believe a Christian can be cremated. Um, will people be married in heaven? Jesus says no. Okay, that's Jesus' answer to that. So then the second question we could ask is, will we have sex in heaven? Here's my answer. I don't know. I think it's no because sex and marriage are often linked, but I don't know. The scriptures don't, scripture, Jesus just says no marriage. I don't know what role sex, if it plays any role. I don't think so, but we'll let it go with that. Can a person who commits suicide go to heaven? This is a heavy one. You know, there are religious systems out there that say if you commit suicide, you are eternally lost. Now, I don't believe that. I don't believe the scriptures teach that. I think suicide is a sin, same as any other sin I commit, and it has grave and ugly results in other people's lives, but I believe a person who commits suicide, if they're a Christian, a believer in Jesus, will go to heaven. Will we remember our lives when in heaven? I think so. That's my answer to that. <laughs> Will we know each other in heaven? I firmly believe yes. Now, here's the thing. The person sitting next to you that you're going to know will look a lot better than they do now. <laughs> so if you're satisfied with what you're looking at now, you just wait. <laughs> now, <laughs> can people in heaven see what's happening on earth? I think so. Uh, there's some passages in Scripture that I believe give us a picture that I believe they probably can. Now, here's the last one I'll, I'll answer, and there's probably a lot of others in your mind that if you entertain, I'd love to, love to discuss them. Um, is the rapture going to happen? Right now we have this movie out in theaters, Left Behind with Nicolas Cage, and then we have the big book series, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. And Is the rapture going to happen? You ready for my answer? <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I'm not a guy who declares that the scriptures teach the rapture. I, I can see where people get that, but I also see a lot of other arguments where it, I, it may not be that clear in scripture. So I don't know. Okay, we'll just leave it at that. Um, again, I want to talk about any of those more, but that's what heaven almost becomes for me. 
when I don't answer this question with affirmative, it's a place to study, theorize about, think about, think, man, I want to be nice when I get there and don't cry anymore. But it's not a place where I'm yearning to see God face to face. Hebrews um, chapter 11 it's a phenomenal chapter. It talks about these men and women who have kind of lived life before us and, and are um, declared to be the heroes of our faith. One of them is Moses, and it says this, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And I need to pause here and give a little background. For those of you who may not be familiar with church and, and the Bible, Moses was a guy he's kind of, the, kind of looked to as a hero in the Jewish tradition and faith. And he was a guy who was born at a time when the nation of Israel was in slavery to the nation of Egypt. And the Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, says, hey, these Hebrews are getting far too numerous, so I want all of Hebrew babies born from here on out killed, execute them. So the order is carried out. Well, Moses' mom births Moses, and Moses' mom looks at this little boy and sees something special in him. I believe it's God saying to her, hey, this man, this little boy is going to deliver these people. So Moses' mom, at great faith and risk of her own life, creates a little basket, puts him down in the Nile River, and just so happens that Pharaoh's daughter comes walking along and finds this cute little baby boy, And thinks, I'm going to raise this little baby boy. And to do it, I'm going to go find a Hebrew woman to help care for this baby boy. And just so happens to walk and grab his mom. Now, after the period of he's weaned from the mom, and it says in Scripture that he grew up then in Pharaoh's house as a prince of Egypt. And so read that again. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And look at what he says instead. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, we read this at times with cutesy little verse. We put it on coffee mugs and all of them. This is a wonderful thing. But you realize what that verse is saying? He had the pleasures of the palace. Everything at his, and the power of the palace and the notoriety and all this stuff. And he says, you know what? I'm going to go live as a slave. How many of us would choose to do that? How many of you in this room would say, you know what? I'm going to give my personal happiness up. I'm going to give up what all this stuff that everyone says I should be living for and I have a right to, and I'm going to go live here. Now look at what it goes on and read. So he says, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the empty, fleeting pleasure of sin. Sin is fun. I'm not going to lie. Some of you know that. Some of you right now are in a moment where sin is a blast. It has its downside. But it goes on to say, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasure of Egypt. Again, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Because he was looking ahead to his reward, so he had his eyes somewhere else. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. I'm not worried what people think of me because I am serving with one person in mind. Now look at this last, this, this last sentence. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. He understood what heaven was. I'm going to get to be with my God face to face. And right now, I'm going to keep that image in my mind. And it's going to allow me to make some really tough choices today because I want gold. I'm not satisfied with a tin of this earth. And you know what it says earlier in Hebrews? You know what it says? I love this. I love this statement. It says earlier in Hebrews, it says, God, this is a quote, God was not ashamed to be called their God. 
But that's the question. I'll make this personal. Is God ashamed to be called your God? So sometimes we think this God of love, yay, he may be in heaven right now saying, I'm ashamed to be called. I see them in worship this morning. It pains my heart. I wish they'd come to me and find satisfaction where only satisfaction can be found. Moses satisfied God, and God says, I am not ashamed. Now, the thing that pains my heart as I think about this is 1 Corinthians 3 makes this statement. This is one of the, is one of the scariest verses to me in Scripture. It says that people, Christians who believe in Jesus, there are people who are going to get into heaven, but it says this in 1 Corinthians 3, is they escape as though just barely making it through the flames. And it says they're going to come. I believe what that passage is talking about is, yes, they put their faith in Jesus. Yes, there was a moment where I believed and God sealed and secured them. But they went on to live for the pleasures of this life and personal happiness. And and they're going to come a day when they stand before God and the flames are going to burn everything up. And they're going to stand there completely naked with nothing to offer God of value and praise. And I personally believe in that moment, though there are no tears in heaven, I believe in that moment there will be great weeping. Because we will understand completely and totally the ramifications of the decisions that we've made for the life that we've lived. Yes, I'm a child of God, and yes, here I am, but I'm going to grieve, and I'm going to hurt. Now, how do we make this really practical? This doesn't mean we walk around bemoaning, the earth is not, have you ever heard this person? You know, they just, they like, all they ever talk about is heaven. The person is so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. Here, I, I came across in my studies this week, uh, St. Francis. He was uh, in the church. He's an old dead guy, way, way back. <laughs> and old dead guys at times can give us really good wisdom because, again, they're... <laughs> but here's what St. Francis said. He was weeding his garden when a visitor asked... I'm going to read this, this quote that was recorded in, in history. What would you do if you knew the world would end tomorrow? St. Francis, it's recorded, lifts his head up, looks at the visitor, and here's his answer. I would finish weeding my garden. <laughs> I would finish weeding my garden. It's not the answer we expect to hear from a, from a giant of our church history, a spiritual giant. So I'm going to finish. So here's, here's what struck me, though. I don't think enough of us ask what James chapter 4 challenges us with. James chapter 4 says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is to be an enemy of God? An enemy of God. Something I don't think any of us in this room want to be. And it goes on to talk about one of the things it says, it says you are so proud. And you go about living your life never asking, God, what is your will? It says you go about doing business, you're going to travel to that city, and you're going to go here, and you're going to go there, and you're going to go about doing your job, and you've never stopped to say, God, is this what you want me to do today? And I think St. Francis understands, as we talked about last week, we are created in Jesus, we are God's workmanship to do good works, and St. Francis, I believe, probably got out of bed every morning and said, God, what have you asked me to do today? And one of the things God asked him to do was to care for the plot of land that he lived on. You know, I think about this a lot. You know how often I get out of bed? I go about my morning routine. I come to the office. I do staff meeting. Why do I do staff meeting? That's because of what I did last week. That's what I did the week before. That's what I did a month ago. It's what you do as a pastor. How often I come here to church on Sunday morning and, and get on this stage to preach, and why am I here? Is this where God wants me today? Am I doing what he's asked me to do? Or am I here because I did it last week and the week before and I got to give Chris some time off and I got to, I mean, why am I here? Do we ever stop and ask, 
in our daily routine, am I doing what God has asked me to do? And I think St. Francis nailed it. And it means I keep pushing to experience satisfaction in Jesus alone. I'll end with a restaurant story since that's where I started. I was, um, when I graduated college, yes, that's me and that's my wife. I think I, I think you can see us there, right? I didn't age too bad. What do you think? <laughs> Looks good. Thank you. Um, <laughs> this is in Miami. I mean, who wouldn't want a vacation in Miami, the home of the dolphins, right? Go, go, go dolphins. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so Tanya, gradu- we graduate college. Um, we're looking forward to a career uh, in her belly there it, it, in only maybe a month or so is a little boy named Luke, who we know him now to be Luke. And so she's pregnant, and we're looking to our future, and let's just go away and, and, and enjoy our time. So we go to Miami. Now, today, when I get to these fine, this is Mezzaluna. It's a restaurant in Miami. It's, it's a kind of, I believe it's other places. O.J. Simpson, you remember O.J. Simpson chasing, being chased in his white Bronco? He ate at a Mezzaluna in Los Angeles before he went on his wild chase across Los Angeles. So this was right about that time. And we said, oh, look, Mezzaluna. O.J. Simpson like it. Why don't we go enjoy it? So we went and enjoyed Mezzaluna. Uh, and took it in and fine dined. But they brought me the menu. And I no longer look at the menu and say, what is filet mignon? I now say, I'll take two of them. I mean, come on, that's good stuff. And I no longer look at the menu and say, where's the hot dog? I no longer look at the menu and say, how about macaroni and cheese or french fries? Why? What's changed? Well, I got married. That's one thing. And it's not to put a knock on my mom's cooking. But I got married. It stretched me outside of my comfort zone. And, and I married a woman who has a palate that isn't juvenile. And I married a woman who's decided I'm going to stretch this little juvenile boy's palate. And he's going to experience wonderful things. And she did. And I'm so thankful for that. I take it in. I say, wow, it's good. I enjoy it. Now, whenever I get so much so that when I eat McDonald's now, when I first got married to Tanya... She used to say to me, don't you get sick when you eat that junk food? No. Are you kidding me? This stuff is like, I just could. Well, today, um, I always found it odd. She'd eat it and be like, oh, I don't feel good. I'm like, oh, come on. You're just playing games. Well, well today, our eating has gotten, my eating's gotten better. The point where I eat McDonald's now, and I have to confess, I know she's here, and I, I've told her this, I get a little sick now and eat McDonald's. So, <laughs> but we still love it, right? We still how many billions of burgers do they serve, whatever? So obviously we're still going. But anyway, here's the deal. I want to end the runways here. You know, as I think about stories of how to experience Christ, I personally do not believe that our desires are too strong. You know, some of you in this room fight with a porn addiction or alcohol or um, some kind of eating or whatever the addiction may be, and we have these strong desires that pull at us. I personally don't think our desires are too strong. I think our desires are too weak. And I believe that we're too easily satisfied. It's easy to eat a hot dog. It's another thing to eat tilapia. And I find that we are so anxious and satisfied to get the the tin. When it's time to grab the gold, it takes a little work. We don't like work. I want to be happy today. And I'm here to say 
There's only one way to this eternal life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want to read, if you flip one page, to Revelation 22, verse 17. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's kind of the end of the Bible. I love that the Bible kind of ends with this. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. And what I find in our world today, we take this stuff for granted. We flush our toilets with it. I stand for half an hour in the shower with it. Let it all run down the drain. We reach into our refrigerator and pull out a bottle or just go and press a little lever or pull a knob and we get water. But you know, 70 plus percent of your body and my body is this liquid called water. And when the human body is deprived of this, if you ever talk to people who have truly been deprived of this substance called water, it is agony like nothing else. And when you're in that state, you crave it more than anything else. And when it finally touches your tongue and works its way down your throat, you feel relief and you experience life like nothing else. So I love the picture of living water. God is saying, listen, you were wired for me. You were created by me for me. And if you want to experience life, drink deep of the well of the spirit of life. So when I go to prayer, I want to say, some in this room need to repent this morning. And you need to come back to the well and say, you know what, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me for looking out there for satisfaction. Thinking that that job or that career or that relationship or that whatever, good stuff, but that's going to make me happy. Maybe this morning, you just need to stop and say, God, forgive me. I'm dying of thirst. God, I am a Christian, but I need to drink again of your life. Others in this room, I want to say I'm going to pray for, maybe you need to make that decision for the very first time. Maybe your soul is empty, it's craving life, and you knew right now if you died, you would not spend eternity with God in heaven. And I want to say it's as simple as what this verse says, come, Come, acknowledge your thirst. I need him, I trust him, and I put in my trust for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. I am going to drink of Christ. I put my trust in him alone. So for some in this room, you need to do that. I invite you to do that as I pray. God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, we're going to sing a song here in a moment that that declares your greatness, that declares how wonderful you are. And God, we're going to sing a song in a moment that, that looks forward to that moment when we're in heaven crying out to you with our sin removed and us in perfection and just finding total satisfaction in you alone. God, we live in an earth where we're still have sin in our bodies, And there's pulls and tugs for our attention and our satisfaction. And God, some of us hurt and grieve and hit bumps 
Now, those of us have joys in life, and God, it can get busy, and the worries of this life can distract us and pull us. God, help us to be people. There are people in this room that need to repent right now of the life and the things that they've been running after that are not you. God, may we do that. May we be people that are bold and courageous and step towards you and say, I have sinned. If we're not here this morning and we can't say to live as Christ, to die as gain, would we do business with you right now? And God, for others in this room, God, I, I, I cry out for, there are those here who when eternity comes, they will not spend it with you. Your heart is for them. You've made them. You've created them. You've fashioned them in your image. And God, you yearn to be in relationship with them. And God, it says in the scriptures that you want no one to perish into that lake of fire. You want all men and women to be saved. So I pray that that person here this morning would hear that message and that they would know that all the stuff that they're looking to in life, whether it be religion, relationships, power, politics, money, none of it brings the satisfaction that you do. And God, they will never have you unless they humble themselves and come get a drink from Jesus. So God, would this morning be the morning that people walk towards you and drink, some for the first time and some, some who knew the taste long ago and their tongues are dry and they crave for that refreshment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you please rise and join us in singing?